You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If you're new here, we've not met. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And let me just welcome you and say it's really great to have you with us. Um, we're so grateful that you would come and worship. And what we're doing is we're working through a uh, book of the Bible. Right now we're teaching section by section, uh, sort of verse by verse, through the book of First Peter. And we're calling this series Thriving on the Margins because Peter is writing... Uh, to a people that are marginalized. He's writing to people in Asia Minor, kind of uh, modern-day Turkey, and uh, he's writing to people who are cultural outsiders. Uh, he, he begins by saying, you live in exile. Um, he, he's talking to people who, he says, you live in exile, but they live in their homeland where they were born. What he's saying is, though you live in the place you have grown up in, your faith and allegiance to Jesus and your rejection of other gods places you culturally outside as if you're not at home. Because the truth is, this world is not our home. And so we too are to identify as those who live in exile, uh, those who live uh, uh, on the margins. And certainly the perception in our own culture would be that um, the exclusive faith in Jesus Christ alone uh, is a view that is less tolerated perhaps than a generation ago, and certainly it would appear that in some ways uh, believers in Jesus are more and more finding ourselves uh, on the margins, which is what Jesus said ultimately we always uh, should view ourselves as if Jesus said if they rejected him, then they will reject us. So what we've been talking about is how do we represent him how do we faithfully live for Jesus in a world that is not um, friendly towards him? How do we represent Jesus in a hostile culture? And so that's what we've been talking about, and today we're going to continue that theme. It all goes back, before I read today's text, it really all goes back to a section of the letter in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 12, um, he, Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, and there he means not non-Jews, but unbelievers. There are Gentile Christians, uh, I'm one, likely you are too. Uh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So live in an honorable way among unbelievers in a culture of unbelief. Well, how do you do that? Here's what he says in the next verse. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So he keeps giving us these surprising uh, alarming kinds of things we're supposed to do, to be subject to unbelieving authorities in our culture. That's what he says that we are to do. That's how we live in an honorable way. We are to, uh, as an act of submission to Jesus, we are to submit to others as long as they don't require disobedience to Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 17, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor everyone. And he has in view here, that includes your enemies, which is a pretty large group for them. Honor every human being. Love your fellow believers. Love the people in the church. 
fear God. He only, don't, don't fear your enemies, only fear God. And then he says, honor the emperor. This honor, he says twice, because I've got to believe they're reading that. He says, honor everyone. And people are going, okay, yeah, I've got categories that certainly certain people are excluded from that. Honor everyone, including the emperor, is what he says. So uh, it's really uh, an amazing picture of how we are to live. As we've studied 1 Peter in recent weeks, uh, I've just been praying for God to do a work in my heart and our hearts, to really reset our vision for what it means to live in the world we live in. More than that, more than a different vision, I'm praying that God would be doing a deep spiritual formation in us. What we're talking about here, how to relate to others, it's not just some strategy. This is a heart issue where God wants to do a deep work of forming our hearts so that we would be changed people and that the way we view other people, especially those who oppose Jesus or oppose us personally, that when we think of them, we would think different thoughts and that we could represent Jesus before them, not only with our words, but with our attitudes. And not only with our attitudes when we're saying something or have a facial expression or whatever it is, but when no one's looking and we hear some some thing being said about Christians that we know is not true or being categorized unfairly and we know that's not true or them saying something about the Bible or something about Jesus or something about ethics, uh, gender or sexuality or some ethical issue, and we say we know that's not what the Bible teaches, but that's what they're saying, that even when they're doing that, that in our hearts there is not this haughty, self-righteous battle like it's us against that person. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers. It's against ideologies. But we are to love people. We are to honor them, the Bible says. And this is a deeply formed character issue in the church. When we think about character and godliness and holiness, the stuff we're going to talk about today, it's got to be front and center when we live in a world that is hostile to the gospel. So let's read today's passage. We're going to start with verse 13 in chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3. The last part of chapter 3 is super, super difficult. I'm going to tell you that right now. And so I'm going to spend very little time on that. Uh, But the first part, because I don't want you to go out of here today going, oh, yeah, he said some stuff about how we're to react to an uh, an ungodly, hostile culture. But what I really want to know is when was Jesus preaching to spirits in prison in the days of Noah? Okay, that's that section. So that, I don't want you to get caught up in all that. I will talk about it a little bit. But I really want to focus on this first section. So this is, we're going to read verses 13 to 17 in chapter 3 from God's Inerrant word. Now, who is there among you if you are zealous for what is good? No, I'm sorry. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing 
evil. He makes some statements here that are, that are not immediately intuitive for us. I mean, the big idea of this, this, these verses we just read is that suffering for righteousness, suffering for righteousness is a blessing, and it's an open door for our witness. That to suffer for righteous is, righteousness is to be blessed, and it is the pathway. It, it, it opens the door for our witness to Jesus. He begins this section in verse 3 asking a rhetorical question. He's not looking for an answer, but he says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? I imagine when this was led, read to the churches in Asia Minor and the reader, the pastor, whoever it was in the local gathering, small little gathering, got up and said, Peter wrote us a letter, and he asked this question, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Someone likely raised their hand and said, Nero, he's the one who will harm you for doing good. Everybody will harm you for doing good. What are you talking about? Well, he's asking a rhetorical question. It functions like a proverb. Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, they are not promises. They are observations about how life generally works. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying that life generally works this way. If you are zealous for good and you are doing good to others, in most situations, most people uh, are not going to harm you if you are doing them good. Um, But if they do, verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness, you'll be blessed. So even if you're doing the right thing and it costs you for upholding a biblical standard, for staying true to the gospel, for holding to Jesus Christ, uh, if, even if you are harmed for that, that will be a blessing. That will be a blessing. He says, you will be be- blessed. Down in verse 17, he said, it's better to suffer for doing good uh, if that's God's will than for doing evil. evil. So you will be blessed. And by the way, this may be God's will for you to suffer. Now, this verse isn't a popular verse. That it's, It could be God's will for you to suffer persecution. That, that's not a coffee cup verse down at the Prosperity Theology Conference. Uh, that's not showing up. That, it's, that God may be wanting you to suffer, the church to suffer, but he, he has good out of that. You're going to be blessed in that. It's going to be a blessing. It may be hard to see at the moment, but it's going to be a blessing. So if you are suffering for righteousness, keep your eyes on Jesus. Look what he says, verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord. As holy, honor uh, Christ the Lord as holy. So in your hearts, even if you're being opposed by others, look to Jesus and realize that he is set apart as holy. He says, have no fear of them, verse 14. Don't be troubled. So don't fear those who oppose you. Don't fear the culture. Don't Don't be bearing this trouble for what they're going to say or do because you're living for Jesus or speaking up for Jesus. But instead, honor Christ. Honor Christ. Well, what kind of suffering are they going through? We've talked about this, that they're probably being resisted. Some people may be losing their jobs. They're certainly being mocked. They're certainly being challenged by their lifestyle. Uh, Some uh, pagan husbands may be leaving their freshly converted wives who now believe in Jesus and uh, leaving them vulnerable. One thing we know for sure that's happening to them in this passage is they're being slandered. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, it's a given, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Have you ever been slandered? Someone said something untrue about you that, that had the effect of uh, harming your reputation. 
Somebody said something about you that was harmful. Have you ever had that happen? I have. And I know that my impulse when that happens is I want to get back and say something in return. Well, first of all, that's not true. And secondly, let me tell you about him. He's a hypocrite to say that about me. That, that's what goes on in my heart. I want to build a case for how I can respond in kind to their slander of me. The first thing I was going to is to clear my fair name. Uh, and then the second thing I want to do is get back and poke at them in return. But here he's talking about a totally different response. He's saying, honor Christ as Lord. What does that mean? It means to trust Jesus that he is Lord over this situation. He may have ordained this suffering, his will, and he's going to bless me through this suffering. And we're about to see he's going to use this if I will respond correctly. He will use this as a witness to who he is. That one of the ways that evangelism goes forth is by suffering Christians reflecting Jesus in their suffering so that onlookers say, I don't have a category for that. What is going on? That's part of the plan of the mission of the church. And we just don't see that so frequently. Honor him in our response. See, I will answer to Jesus. I will not answer to a slanderer. The day of judgment, I will not be explaining myself to any slanderer, but I will answer to Jesus for every thought, word, and deed. We want to honor him for his glory. We want to honor him in our response. Well, surprisingly, as I mentioned, this is a doorway to gospel witness. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. So what he's saying is that if you live in such a way representing Christ faithfully, trusting him, even when you are opposed, that ultimately that will stir some people, at least, some people to inquire as to what is your hope? How can you continue on when, when you are viewed on the margins, when you are rejected, when you are laughed at, when you are slandered? How, why do you keep going? Why do you keep believing this thing you believe? Wouldn't it be a lot easier just to say, okay, there's many gods Jesus is one of them. You can have Jesus if you'll just acknowledge there's many gods here in Asia Minor. If you'll just acknowledge Caesar is Lord, you can surely still worship Jesus and do your Christian thing. Why, why are you making it hard on yourselves and just persisting to live this way? Why, when they treat you this way, why don't you treat them the same in return? He's expecting that someone would tap these Christians on the shoulder and say, where do you get the hope you have in these circumstances? The word for defense, he says when that happens, you are to make a defense. Be prepared to make a defense. The word defense... The Greek word, it looks like, if you could see it transliterated, it kind of looks like apology. It's the word from which we get the word apologetics, which is the study of the defense of the faith. How do we defend Christian doctrine or uh, truth? How do we defend the Bible? So that's, that's kind of what uh, apologetics are. So he's saying, hey, make an apologetic. When you're asked, give an apologetic for the hope that you have. 
But when you're making that defense and giving that apologetic, it's so key here. Don't just give a Jesus answer. Deliver it with a Jesus attitude. And that's the hard part. Do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, here's what he's saying, using a slightly different wording. Have convictions. Have biblical convictions, but communicate them with civility. Have some civility about the way you react and respond to others so that you are respecting them no matter what their point of view. You are respecting them as someone who is created in the image of God with whom we share a fellow humanity. Respect, be gentle, have convictions, but deliver them with civility. Someone called this convicted civility. What we need in this day is convicted civility. I heard a professor put it like this. The problem is, here's the problem, that most people with strong convictions aren't very civil. And most people who are civil don't have very strong convictions. That's true, isn't it? What we need are people, Christians, who have strong, deeply held, deeply rooted beliefs in the Scripture, in the person of Jesus Christ, in what a holy life is to look like, that we have strong convictions, and yet we communicate those in a way that is civil, with gentleness and respect. It's hard to find, I'm using the word civil, I know that's not there, but it's hard for me to think of a better description of civility than someone who communicates with gentleness and respect for others. We need both. We need both strong convictions and civility. I'm going to share a couple of pastoral burdens this morning. I didn't run this by our whole pastoral team, though I feel very confident they would agree because we talk about this stuff. But I'll speak personally as a pastor, one of the pastors. Pastorally, I carry a burden on this issue for at least two groups of people. I carry a burden for myself. But at least two groups of people. I carry a burden for the younger generation. If you're in middle school here this morning, high school, college, you're in your 20s, uh, you may be civil. Many in your generation are pretty civil, even in the church. The younger generation tends to be fairly civil. But my concern is that they lack strong convictions, that you may lack strong biblical convictions. That's a concern, and here's why. Because you have grown up in an environment in this culture where people are very comfortable speaking about my truth and then asking you to share your truth. But if anyone says, this is the truth, that Jesus is the truth, the only truth, then you are banished as a bigot. That is is hate speech. That is, uh, and it could be spoken hatefully, That's why it has to be spoken with gentleness and respect. But I'm less concerned about young people, Christians, uh, understanding how to communicate, how to relate with others in gentleness and respect. The concern is the making a defense part. Because the Bible anticipates here that if we take a stand and make a defense for Jesus Christ, we will be persecuted. 
We will be slandered. We will be resisted. This isn't some victimhood mentality that's, that's false. It, Jesus said, they rejected me, they opposed me, they will you as well. And so we need to press on sort of beyond the idea that I'm, I'm, if I mention Jesus and, my, and identify with him or identify with biblical ethics, biblical sexual ethics, if I identify with that, I'm going to be marginalized as someone who is, you know, uh, who hates other, other people, a hater. Well, that's just the world we live in. In some places, that may be exactly the case. But we are called to make a defense for the hope that is within us. And make no mistake, this hope is exclusive. All other hopes are false hopes. The only true eternal hope is in Jesus Christ. And we must, we must own that truth. That's not just my truth and your truth. That's the truth from the God of the universe. And to be a Christian is going to be to identify with that divisive belief which divides uh, the world between those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. Make a defense of the hope. Well, what is that hope? In the third verse of the whole letter, he tells us what that hope is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's saying this is our hope, is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was raised from the dead. We are putting, we're pushing in all our chips and going all in on the truth that Jesus is resurrected from the dead, that he rules and reigns over all, that he is the king, and that we owe our allegiance to him. We're to do all that with gentleness and respect. And as I said, I have much less concern that younger people understand civil discourse. My, my concern would be that we don't lack courage to enter into civil discourse, remain civil, but be firm on the truth of Jesus Christ. Stanley Auerwas, the, Auerwas, the uh, theologian, once said, Jesus Christ is Lord and everything else is BS. He didn't use the letters. Um, but he's a little more theologically progressive than I am. And as a theological conservative, I don't get to say that in church. But I'll say it to you in the hall afterwards. Uh, <laughs> some days, just one day I'd like to be in that camp where I could really say it like it is. But... I'm going to remain at the, but that, that may not be gentleness and respect, but, uh, but again, it is true. And so those of you who are good on the civility thing, you need to believe Jesus Christ is Lord and everything else is BS. Every other mentality and ideology that would challenge the reign of Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus is to be rejected. That's what it means. And we may suffer, but that is God's will. We need Younger people in particular, and I know I'm painting with a broad brush, but younger people in particular, we need, or you need, I'm not in your group, you need convictions with your civility. Pastorally, I carry a burden for older generations as well that we would add civility to our convictions. I'm not so concerned about older Christians. We tend to have righteous convictions. We tend to hold them tightly. The problem is, older Christians tend to look at the world we're in today and assess it like this. The world is crazy. Everybody around us, it's, it's, it's a bunch of perverts and nut jobs. And then older Christians aren't afraid 
to then use that kind of language and not realize that you are alienating people from Jesus Christ when you speak in a way that does not represent him. Even if you believe the truth and you're right about the exclusivity of Christ, you're right about the inerrancy of God, in a moment you'll talk about any of that, yet your attitude, our attitude towards those who are lost and on the outside can be so sharp that, that it, it, it repels rather than attracts to Jesus. The cross will repel unbelievers, but let's make that the only stumbling block. Let's don't make my attitude the stumbling block. Let's make the cross the only stumbling block to Jesus Christ. So we can make it many, many, I'm speaking broadly, many older Christians, many boomer Christians can have good biblical convictions but we just don't always communicate with gentleness and respect. And what happens in that is that we do one of two things. We either push people away or we just get dismissed. It's just a roll of the eyes and there goes grandpa again. But nobody takes it seriously because it doesn't, it doesn't reflect the love of Jesus, the humility of where would I be without Jesus, the gratitude of he's opened up my eyes, that kind, that kind of approach without ever compromising. Don't compromise your belief in Jesus. Absolutely not. It's just how we present it. I mean, there are some of our families and the younger generation, they've already got a list of things not to bring up at Thanksgiving dinner or else mama's going to go off. And mama's a Christian, but mama's going to go off. If anybody mentions, oh, I could start listing names, I could start listing social groups, I could start listing political parties, and it varies by family. But don't say this or grandpa's going to talk 30 minutes and, oh, my, don't say it, please. Why? Because mama and grandpa have some biblical convictions. That's good. That's good. They just don't deliver them in a biblical manner. And so I don't want any older folks, myself included, I'm in this group, I don't want us to be dismissed with the truth we have simply because our attitude is a block. And I don't want any younger people who, like, know how to listen and relate and aren't trigger-happy to go off on somebody when they say something they don't believe. I don't want them to lack the courage to speak up for Jesus when you need to speak up. And that's why older people in the church need younger people. And younger people need older people. A lot of us older Christians, we need some of the communication, listening, humility, that is, is among the, the younger generation at points. And the younger generation, you need the strong conviction for truth that the older generation has that, that many in your generation lack. We need one another. God tells us to respond to our enemies with gentleness and respect. He's saying, relate to people like Jesus. Oh, I don't know. I can't develop this. I don't have time. But somebody's going to quickly say, well, Jesus wasn't very civil. He overturned the tables. Every time in the Bible where there is harsh activity from a Christian leader or Christ himself, it's always against religious people. Jesus didn't go down where the tax collectors and the prostitutes were gathered and turn over their tables. He didn't war against the world. 
He invited those people to dinner to reveal God to him. He turned the tables over the Bible people, the religious people that were acting in such a way that was marginalizing people from coming in, outsiders from coming in and worshiping God. It was a house of prayer. What about Paul? He wasn't civil. He said some hard stuff. Well, yeah, to legalistic people who said you have to be circumcised to be a Christian, he said, I wish they'd cut it all off. That's what he said. That's not very civil, but that's people that are compromising grace in the church because they're legalists. He didn't say that on the Mars Hill when he's speaking to unbelievers. He didn't walk up and say, this is what I wish you'd do to yourself. He didn't say that. He said that in how, so, so people who were harming the gospel but proclaiming to be followers of Jesus. So the most strong comments in the New Testament are they're geared towards people that are legalists, not towards the lost. How do we cultivate gentleness? Well, here two ideas. One is we think about how has Jesus treated us. Do you know the Bible says that we were his enemies, every one of us? And yet Romans 5 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How did Jesus treat his enemies? He sacrificed himself. That's how he treated his enemies. He sacrificed himself. It it, it means that we consider how Jesus treated us, but to be gentle, Jesus said, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. The Holy Spirit is gentle. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness in Galatians. Um, So it's not enough just to consider how Jesus treated us, but we have to treat, we have to really get that we were his enemies. We need to get this idea that where would we be without him? I read something very interesting. This isn't just one section of the Bible that I'm, I'm, got, I'm getting all this from First Peter. Uh, th- this is all over the Bible, in the New Testament in particular. But there's a, there's a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. And he says at the end of chapter 2, uh, Titus is you know, leading in this church. At the end of chapter 2, he says, Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So he's like saying, Titus, you're going to have to get in there. You're going to have to get the church together. You're going to have to start rebuking people. So what's he going to rebuke them for? Because they're getting drunk, because they're sleeping around. Well, if they are, they should be rebuked. Um, Because they're compromising uh, and becoming worldly, what's he going to rebuke them on? I kind of want to know, what's he going to go to town on everybody? And then this is what the next verse says. Remind them, rebuke them, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Rebuke them, reminding them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. Rebuke them and remind them to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Listen, if I didn't tell you where that's from and I said, I've got a message for you today. God wants you to show perfect courtesy to all people. You'd say, that's just nicey-nice religion. That's naive. That's not the real world. That's the Bible. That is the word of God. Rebuke them because they're not showing perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish. Here's the point. Look, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to our passions and pleasures. You're concerned about all of their passions? What were you enslaved to? Truth be told, what are some of us still enslaved to? 
Uh, passing our days in malice and envy. We used to be angry at everybody, envying them, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He he simply says, look, remember who you were. Remember where you would be today if it hadn't been for the grace of God that came and regenerated you. And then that will help you relate to others by respecting authority, by doing all the good works God's prepared for you to do, by relating to other people with gentleness and perfect courtesy. Because this is how people who were hated and being hated, but now are loved by God and loving one another, this is how they respond. It's, it's radical stuff. For the Lord to form this kind of attitude in my character so that when I hear this person or that person, the first thing that comes to my mind is, but for the grace of God, I'd be saying the same thing. I'd be living in the same darkness, but Jesus had mercy on me. Now, he or she needs to know the truth. They need to know they're on their way to hell because they've rejected God. They need to know that Jesus is Lord and there's no other way. But that needs to come to them maybe when they ask me of it, or it needs to come to them when I take initiative with it and present it with gentleness and respect. That's the key. Strong convictions, hear me, but with gentleness and respect. Gentleness may mean that we're willing to absorb. That's what Jesus did. He's willing to absorb a blow. I don't mean literally here, metaphorically. Absorbing the blow to take one for the cause of the gospel. That's kind of what Peter's saying. Look, sometimes you've got to just take one for the cause of the gospel because the end game is that people know Jesus. And sometimes that means we need to... uh, Reflect him that always, that we don't respond in kind. I heard a story this week, somebody was, so it's third hand, but it's a great story. I heard that someone who was describing something that happened at Redeemer Church in New York City back when uh, Tim Keller used to pastor there. He's telling this story about how this lady came up, I guess, to Keller after church and said, hey, I want you to know I'm not a Christian, but I've been coming to this church for two weeks and I'm going to continue to come. As so we said to her, well, why, why are you coming to this church if, you know, if, glad you're here, welcome, but you're not a Christian. And she said, well, here's what happened. Uh, she worked in Manhattan in high finance, high, high up in the financial world. And uh, evidently she did something wrong. She made a mistake and it was very costly. And so she got brought in uh, with her boss. She and her boss went in before the boss boss. I don't know if this was a CEO or what level, but the boss boss, the big boss, And the big boss just started laying into her, filleting her, criticizing her. How could you do this? And so just going off on her. And her boss stepped in and said, you know, hold on, hold on. Um, Hey, you know, please don't, don't aim that at her. It's my department. I'm responsible. I'm responsible. You know, this is my area, my department. She works for me. And uh, the the boss boss kind of slowed down and stopped and changed his tone and addressed the, the guy. They walked out of the office, and she said, in all my years of working, no one has ever done that. Why did you take the blame for me in that situation? And he said to her, I'm a Christian. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, and that means that I believe he took the blame for me. And so it's my privilege to, you know, relate to others, as treat others the way he's treated me. And she said, I asked him, what church do you go to? And when he told her what church he went to, she went and said, I'm not a believer, but I've been here two weeks, and I'm going to keep coming. Because someone related to her in a way that represented the goodness of Jesus Christ. Gentleness, respect. We must see others as created in God's image. We tend to think of ourselves in the best possible light, and our enemies, theological enemies, uh, political enemies, ideological enemies, ethical enemies, whatever, we tend to think of our enemies in their worst possible light. We don't tend to think of the shared humanity that we have. And um, the question is, can we see that God has created others, even our enemies, in his image? Can we think of them and honor them, even when we disagree and even when we're making a defense. Peter says when you face enemies of Christianity and they ask about your faith, speak up, okay? Engage, participate, share. I would say debate even. A defense could be a debate. So debate the ideas even, but always do it in a spirit of gentleness, and respect. If you win the argument and you put them in their place and you don't act like Jesus, you don't win, you lose. You may win an argument, but you lose an opportunity. You harm the cause uh, by fulfilling the stereotypes that are false stereotypes that the world has. That Christians are, you know, just some kind of an angry, narrow-minded bunch that, that, that won't relate with others. We need to learn how, in a polarizing world, uh, to engage. I, I believe today, in this world, there's nothing more shocking than a Christian with unflinching, solid, biblical convictions and ethics who loves those who opposes them and treats those who oppose them with respect. I believe there's nothing more shocking because of the reputation that we have well, that's the heart of what I want to talk about. I'll say very little about the last section here, but that's what I mainly wanted to communicate, that God has called us to live in such a way that people would ask about our hope. That means we're among people. We know them. We're not isolated. We're engaged. But they would see us. They would ask us about the hope, and that when they do, we'd make a defense, firm, not weak, not, not, not uh, shallow, a firm defense about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and the goodness of God to us in his death and resurrection, and that we would do so with gentleness and respect. When they oppose our ideas about gender, sexuality, any number of ethics, ethical concerns that they would have about us, that we say, this is what the Bible teaches, this is the story that God created, the way he created uh, us to live, but we communicate that with gentleness and respect. The last section, let's, let's read quickly the last section here. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, verse 18, sorry. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey 
when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and it is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having subjected, having been subjected to him. Okay, that's just a preview. I'm out of time. I'll try to say something about it next week. How about that? When you're, or next week's Orphan Sunday. I'll say something about it in two weeks. I'll explain that you're saved by faith in Christ, uh, not the literal immersion in water. And uh, I'll explain that Jesus didn't go to hell between his death and resurrection. So th- th- there's, there's some parts that come through this passage uh, that are somewhat uh, confusing. But I did want to end with that last verse. He has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Did you get the flow? Back in chapter 2, it said, subject yourself to all authorities just as Jesus subjected himself. At the end of 3, it says, through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, all authorities are subject to him. So we subject ourselves, and yet we look to the one to whom all are subjected, all powers, all authorities. He will vindicate his people. You don't have to have vengeance. Jesus will vindicate his people. You don't have to explain everything. Jesus, on that day, will explain all things. You don't have to to defend Jesus like he can't defend himself. You speak up and point to him, but Jesus is perfectly capable as the ruler of all powers, spirits, authorities, as the ruler overall of defending himself and of having his way. And so as we suffer, we keep our eyes fixed on him, the one who rules and the one who reigns, knowing that in the last day he will make... um, all things right. He will restore shalom, perfect the way things are meant to be in a new heaven and in a new earth. Um, he will sustain us. Let's put up that Sanchez quote. We'll close with this. Juan Sanchez, thank you. Juan Sanchez says the following. He says, whatever we may suffer and whenever we come to die, we can look back to our baptism, which is in that section, Look back to our baptism and remember that we have been saved from the floodwaters of God's judgment through Jesus' resurrection and will be vindicated and glorified at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can face suffering as Christians with confidence rather than panic and hope rather than despair because the road marked with Christian suffering is no matter what it twists and turns are, the road to vindication and glory. The God who vindicated Jesus will vindicate you, and he will sustain your faith until that day. Amen. Let's pray, and we're going to, let's stand together. I want to pray, and then we're going to receive communion together this morning. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.